Hello and welcome to the Total Mental Performance Podcast, the one and only mindset podcast dedicated to helping fitness entrepreneurs and coaches master their mindset, giving you insider access to industry leaders around their psychology, their campfire stories, and the mindset required to be successful in this business. I'm your host, Kieran O'Neill, mental performance coach and founder of Total Mental Performance, the world's fastest growing specialist mindset service dedicated to the fitness industry. So without further ado, let's lean in and listen. Yes, yes, team, and welcome to another episode of the Total Mental Performance Podcast. Today's gonna be a really interesting conversation. Not that any of our other conversations aren't interesting, but this one in particular, because this gentleman brings something different to the table. I saw him speak at Ollie Carson's Supercharged Q4 event, and what he brought was just so unique and also is just so needed. It was really just, just quite a fascinating experience to be a part of that, of that workshop. Uh, so today we have Paul Standall. He is the founder of the PT Project. And uh, honestly, I've got no idea where this conversation is going to go. And that also excites me the most. Paul, buddy, welcome to the Total Mental Performance Podcast. Dude, thanks for having me on. It's, uh, it's an absolute pleasure. It was, it was lovely to meet you at Ollie's, uh, Ollie's event as well. Just got to try and live up to that intro now. So, you know, fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, we like to set low bars here at TMP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, Paul, if you're going to introduce yourself to uh, our audience, what is it that you do and, and who is it that you coach? So me and my business partner, James, run a company, as you kindly said, called The PT Project, which actually launched earlier this year. And we teach coaches biomechanics is our primary focus. Uh, me and him have both been teaching this subject for, for quite a while. It's a big passion of ours. We think it's an area that most coaches are lacking in. You know, we tend to just pick exercises because you've always done that exercise. You know, it's, well, we've got to squat and hinge and push and pull and maybe a loaded carry or who knows kind of what. But we fail to really appreciate the, the forces that are at play within those exercises and how our anatomy meets them. And more importantly, how do you manipulate them? How do you create a client experience that really takes you up above, above the general trainer into the, the the realms of the elite? Let's call it something kind of like that. So that's what I do with most of my time. More of what you came and saw me speak on is, even though I've just been tripping over my words, which is a wonderful start, is I have a background in performance. So I went to drama school many years ago and spent several years of my life on stage and in front of cameras. And really, actually, probably the start of this year, it started to occur to me that, oh, I've got a bunch of skills in this field that most trainers don't have. And if if we're going to be creating content as online coaches, like it is a game of attention to some degree. And actually, I was like, oh, crap, I've got a huge background in all of this that could probably help people be better on camera or in front of an audience. And oh, I should really start putting out some content and making some things to help that. So it's really a combination of those things. But primarily biomechanics, working with other coaches, trying to make them kick-ass coaches. Amazing. Amazing. And I can see you've got the skeleton behind you, mate. I can, if for those that are listening in, there is a full legit skeleton. So uh, when we're talking biomechanics, this is how we know Paul knows his stuff. He legit lives and breathes this stuff. Um, but this is, this is just put a skeleton behind you. It's yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'll tell you what I need. I need the leather couch. You know, like you see like all the American yes. series with the straight, I need the leather couch. Yeah. Actually, believe it or not, in one of my previous apartments, we actually had one of those. And so the client came nice. in and said, oh, it's just like in the movies. I was like, yeah, I didn't buy that. <laughs> that was not on purpose. That was <laughs> that was here when I moved in. The problem you've got, if, if people aren't that familiar, they can look a lot like a casting couch in the background yeah, of stuff as well. Yeah. So you need to put, you know, you've got to have your books nearby it. You need another chair nearby. You need to sit there with a clipboard, probably wear a turtleneck, you know, really go the whole hog. That's it. And a tripod, of course. Yeah. 
Driver, of course. <laughs> yeah, every, of course. Like basically, Robin, uh, Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting. That's the only yeah. thing he was missing was the was the tripod. That's it. So, actually, go into a little bit more depth. I'd love to know a bit more about your story because obviously, drama school it's not easy. And how did you? Mm. So, if you could describe a little bit about your journey in drama school, and then also how do you go from drama school and then land into personal training? Yeah. So, okay. So my story, I'm, I'm from the countryside, rural England, a place called Herefordshire. And so drama school is not a normal path that you take from there. Pretty much everyone that I know growing up, they're tradesmen. So they're farmers, they're electricians, they're plumbers, they're all that type of thing. Occasionally you knew someone who went off and became a lawyer or a doctor, but there was no performing of any part other than music stuff because that's pretty much everywhere but acting wasn't a thing and so i didn't come to it till later till i was about 15 16 in school and we did a production of uh, of greece uh, and i played kanicki in that and discovered oh i oh i'm kind of a, i'm quite good at this relative mm. to at least the rest of the people in my school and as a i had acne all through my teenage years right and there's the annoying thing about well there are many things that are annoying about acne but one of them is you dislike people looking at you and it kind of makes you feel not particularly attractive and not all that like. And, you know, whether it's a combination of your face covered in boils or the confidence hit that comes from the fact your face is covered mm. in boils, wasn't doing so well with the ladies. And I suddenly discovered, though, that, well, if I pretended to be other people, I had this level of confidence <laughs> that just didn't feel like it was internally true. But it didn't matter because it was kind of working. I was getting more attention. I was getting told I was good at this. I felt like I was good at it as well, which definitely played a bit of a role. And so... I started just down that path. And then by the time it got to university choice, it was either at that point I was debating either going and studying philosophy or going to drama school. They were the, the two ideas that I had in mind. Settled on drama school. So you go through a bunch of auditions for different drama schools. I knew nothing about drama schools. You learn some monologues, you go. and it, It's tough to get in from a pure numbers perspective. It's about 3,000 people for every 30 places. So it's, it's pretty stiff on that regard. And then kind of off you go. And it, it sort of, I suppose a lot of that ties into, so how training met this is actually related to the acne, uh, the acne thing in that, you know, I, I finished high school, started sixth form, which in, cause you're in a rural place was in a completely separate, <laughs> separate part of the world. And I, I stopped doing any exercise, like in school, you know, I played a bunch of sport, but I stopped playing all those sports and I was just drinking beer now and having two breakfasts a day and everything kind of else. And so I started to get chunkier and chunkier and weird this, but having bad skin and being super chunky was also not a great recipe for, for attracting the other sex. So I was like, wow, there doesn't seem to be anything I can do about my skin. So at least I can, I can get in better shape. So Joined the college gym, went every day, two hours a day type thing, got in better shape. That did make a difference. I was like, oh, okay, so this is kind of good. So I'd gotten into training about 17. And so that was always in the back burner all through drama school, through that of like, you know, I was that weirdo, even at drama school, who was like, okay, I've got to play an American footballer. Sweet. I'm going to get up to like 15, 16 stone. I'm just going to, I didn't know what I was doing. I was just cover like copying Dorian Yates workouts yeah. on the back of stuff, smashing shakes, <laughs> getting up at 3 a.m. to have a shake. It's just all that stuff. And then I also played, you know, a frail, it was a weird thing of drama school. You play a bunch of different ages that you will never actually do till you're nearer that age. But in drama school, you know, you're, you're condensed to, well, there's the 30, 25 to 30 of you, and you've got to cast and do everything within that group of people. So, okay, I'm going to play this old, nearly 100-year-old, like, strange guy in a play called Gormenghast, which is a, is a book series. And so I got down to, I don't know, like, 10 and a half stone, kind of, of that thing. And so I would 
fuck around a little bit with like, oh, I want to embody that character and start to to kind of play that thing in. And so training played a bit of a role in, in some of that stuff. There was, I had to take my shirt off in a play for the first time. And so I was like, I'm gonna get shredded because that's definitely what Shakespeare needs. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> so so uh, did, that, did that type of thing. And then really, as I started to leave drama school, I wanted, obviously, so I was quite fortunate that I worked pretty consistently for a, a good couple of years out of that. But then you're like, okay, I need a job around auditions. And so two things jumped out to me, one of which was driving instructor and the other was personal trainer. And thank God I chose personal trainer. <laughs> and uh, so, you know, I then spent a few years or, you know, working around PTing and sort of juggling these two things. And I've always been an intellectually curious person. And so it was actually nice to have another world outside of just the purely creative one that was a bit more intellectually stimulating that I could go and read. This is, you know, 2011, 2012 type time. So T Nation was the main thing you'd go online and start learning from and check and Poliquin things and, you you know, pull books out of libraries and, and all that kind of stuff. And so one thing led to another and, uh, you know, you, you start following what you are reading in magazines or what these promises online are telling you. And, you know, they were better than having no structure, so they worked a bit, but I, I still wasn't looking like Arnie. I still wasn't looking like Dorian Yates, in spite of following their program, apparently. And so then you learn a bit more sciencey stuff, and then, oh, that goes well, and that gets a bit better. And one thing leads to another, and eventually I found myself in the biomechanics world, and I was like, oh, this is, this is kind of great. So that's that side of the story. And I suppose the other one that we, we can easily touch on within that is part of my story involves OCD. So... I had my mental health battles were with obsessive compulsive disorder, which didn't occur to me as an option that I could be struggling with. So I'm 34 now. This was when I was 26 through 28 in particular. And because in my head, OCD was flicking light switches or turning Coke cans around or whatever. And (laughs) that's not really kind of what it is. So, you know, that whole experience of just feeling depressed, unable to escape my own head and feeling like I couldn't really kind of do this anymore. Like, you know, it's it's not that I actively wanted to die. It's just that life was unbearable to live with the sort of weight and the burden that it felt like. And you just, you know, the head's that shit place. It's the one thing you can't escape from is your own brain. And so, you know, you try and get some help. You, you go to the doctor, you break down in tears. And we're like, oh, I just can't stop crying. And they give you some medication and put you on a bit of a waiting list. And then you start a bit of a triage process. And then you get on a phone with some people and they start asking you some questions at the end of these three initial calls, they were like, we think you you were thinking actually possibly OCD. And I was like, what? I thought maybe I was bipolar or something because I could be quite up and down with stuff. That never occurred to me. And so, okay, then I went privately and got a bunch of treatment for OCD, devoured every book I could find on the, on the subject, et cetera. And to this day, I still say I learned more about coaching and you know, hopefully being a semi-decent human from that experience really than than anything else and that those probably those three worlds really are, are where i collide i suppose there's so much to unpack in all of that <laughs> when you look at that journey i think it's very very common amongst coaches to start from a place of darkness and mm. then some coaches break out of that into the light and and you know when i see you speaking about what you speak about and as i've been engaging in your content since since we met i can see you really give a shit you know so I suspect a lot of what you're doing today is, is built out of light. But that darkness of being insecure, of physiologically, I see this a lot of coaches, they get very hung up on how they look and how they, and mm-hmm. how they present themselves. And often when I speak to coaches, it comes back to, well, and I've coached bodybuilding world champions, and it's like, well, why, 
wine is I, I felt skinny or not strong or or whatever at, at school in my teenage years and uh, I wanted to completely break that down you know so I can sense there's there's an element of darkness that's driven a lot of that and being able to process that into positive things versus negative things is, is obviously a bonus right yeah 100 like I mean you know the, one of the big things that you've just got in life is that you go from being a child to apparently an adult in a really short period of time. And you've, you have to forge a whole identity through that. And God only knows what things coalesce and come together to make you you in, in those bits. And so there's going to be some, God, I mean, do you know anyone without any darkness in them for those things? And I'm reminded there's a, there's a, a, a great writer uh, in the early 1900s called G.K. Chesterton. And you know, sometimes I see people talk, and I always think it's pseudo-philosophical or pseudo-psychological, about acting from a place of love purely, right? And, and only love. And it's always struck me as a, a bit naive because mm-hmm. <laughs> most people don't really change stuff until they're in some pain. Yeah. And G.K. Chesterton had a wonderful line that clicked with me, and I went, ah, he's right. That's what it is. And his bit was like, can someone hate something enough to want to change it, but love himself enough to think him worth changing? And I think it's that dichotomy of fuck this <laughs> with, but I'm also worth changing. And there is something of value here. And there is, there is a life that I could love living. And that must be true because I've had wonderful moments in my life. And so even in those dark moments going, have I smiled before? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So it's, it's possible that I could smile again. Good. Have other people been through something similar and come out the other side positively? Yes. Okay. So it must be possible. And sometimes just that light alone is enough to drag your ass through <laughs> some of those really shitty times yeah and uh, you tapped onto something that's really nice which is about what are you angry about so a lot of what we do at tmp mm. once we've shifted more of the the challenging emotions that are getting in the way from a performance standpoint like fear anxiety imposter and comparison syndrome self-doubt all of those things that aren't inherently bad but they get to a point where they're stopping you from performing at the levels that you can once we've shifted all of that we put the foundations in so you can ride those waves really well then we tap into mm. vision, planning, and purpose. And a big part of meaning and purpose there, we like, I, I directly asked clients this, and I, if you're listening to the podcast, hit pause at this moment. Let's put 30 to, no, in fact, put, put 90 seconds on a timer and give this a go. What makes you angry about the world? What makes you mm. angry about how the world is set up? And uh, hit pause, journal on that, and then hit play and then come back to that. Because anger is where our values live. When you're angry about something, it's usually because you give a shit about it. And people like to think that uh, there's two parts of anger. One part is they're your values. The other part is fear. Like you're really fucking scared and you need an anger response to, to keep you alive. There's, there's two parts of anger. It's not as simplistic as just that or that. Um, but when I'm talking about meaning and purpose, when you think about what makes you angry about the world and what makes you angry about yourself, often if it's about to, directed towards yourself, that's the parts of the deadwood that need to be burnt off in order for you to go to the next level or iteration of your identity. The parts that make you angry about the world are the deeper meaning and purpose that enables you to push through darkness, that enables you to fucking put up with the shit. Let's be honest, running a fitness business, it's not fucking easy. You know, you, you're going to have lots of different things. So it's got to be meaningful enough for a reward payoff and darkness and money will take you so far. And then you get to a point where you kind of get stuck. And for me, what makes me angry about the world is people not getting an opportunity or a shot. As a kid, I felt like I was denied a few opportunities that were unjust and unfair. Whether they were or not, I don't know. But that, that was the imprint I had as a child. And uh, for me, I like to think that what we create is an opportunity for psychological freedom. And 
whether whether that is through the charity that we support or whether that's through you know any of our programs from group all the way up to to one to one um that's a big thing for me and for me uh, when i had an eating disorder i remember um going into this group eating disorder workshop from the nhs and i'll never knock the nhs it's doing the best of what it has but i was the only guy with a room of 15 girls and on top of that a lot of them were really attractive and I found them really attractive and I was so insecure and lacking right. confidence. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. like, oh my God, I never went back. This is the worst room. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was just like, God, this is like yeah. the best worst room ever. Jesus Christ. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so conflicted. Uh, yeah, I was I was so insecure and I couldn't even look any of them in the eyes, you know, and 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 I fell out and I felt like I didn't really have that 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 shot. I also didn't have the resources or the means to go and spend a lot of money on a, on a therapist privately. So I, I just felt stuck. You know, so for me, what made me angry is people not getting a shot. And a lot of the coaches I work with, often they're very, a lot of them are self-made. Maybe they've built their own thing. So off the back of that, we create opportunities for people to look at themselves on a deeper level, perhaps not to a, you know, psychiatric ward level, because you don't need that. But from sure. a performance level, yeah. we create that, the ability for people to open the door, so to speak, to go into that world. And I find that when you tap into anger and you tap into what makes you angry and pisses you off, whether that's yourself or the, or the world, you can start to build on meaning and purpose, which sustains you through the shit, because there's got to be enough of a payoff before yeah. it all comes crashing down, you know? Have you found that over time that that thing that made you angry has dissipated at all? Is it still kind of bubble there somewhat? Like, how is your relationship to it now? Uh, when I think about people not getting shots, like, I will always back an underdog. Always. Yeah. I will always back <laughs> an underdog. There's something in me where when I see an underdog, I think, yeah, fair play, you know? And if you look at our team, our team... They're all brilliant at what they do, but they were all either underdogs when they joined or they've been underdogs in their lives. And that that's mm. really important. So there's there's almost less of um, an anger and more of a love towards it. And that might sound a bit weird, right? There's, there's a love, there's a, there's, I appreciate the underdog. I love the underdog and that excites me. So I guess there has been a, a shift, you know? Yeah, that, that's kind of really where I was getting at because as you were speaking there, I was kind of like, I don't know if I feel that angry about that many things anymore. Mm. I certainly used to when I was younger, but I'm, I'm, you know, I don't want to sit here and be like, I'm super Zen. Nothing fucks me off. Right. That's, that's obviously not the case. And it'd be kind of weird if you were in that, uh, in that sort of a headspace anyway, like you're supposed to get annoyed by some things. Otherwise you probably don't care about anything, which is maybe <laughs> not, not the greatest place to get. But, you know, I th at least for myself, there's been a, a process of acceptance, I suppose is, is the right word for it. And a lot of I think what we end up getting annoyed about is a feeling of in, incompetence, inadequacy, inability to have an impact on the things that we care about. And that fucking is annoying, right? <laughs> and if you're not careful, you can get bitter and you can get resentful and all those things as well. And I don't know a human alive who hasn't toyed with those thoughts and feelings. But if you can find a better way through, <laughs> at least for myself, this has been the case, that a lot of that has sort of died down and I feel very quite fortunate and lucky to be able probably similar to what you're describing there yourself to get to help and to get to share this kind of thing and be like look how cool this is <laughs> uh, and look how like it doesn't have to just be this frustrating thing you can have such a great impact on these things you just have to understand this and understand this and be able to action some of these bits and pieces and figure out how you fit into them with your personality and if we can do all that there's loads of space here this world doesn't I don't think it has to be so frustrating and so ang angering if that even makes any sense. 100%. And I speak a lot about dark energy and light energy, particularly based on where coaches and, and entrepreneurs are at within their journey, you know. 
like if you're starting out and you've got about 500 quid in the bank and you're you're mm. fucking scared actually a bit of dark mm. energy can do you a bit of a favor because you can you can leverage that and harness that you know there are some times when you need that and perhaps having a chip on your shoulder will actually get you to a pretty good level but you will always get you'll always eventually hit the glass ceiling and you'll get stuck and you'll either burn out or you'll get bored or it won't have the same meaning and purpose anymore for me i reached that moment in software sales software sales is really good when you're skint and insecure but when you're not skint anymore and you're not insecure anymore you sit there so i, I used to sell um a customer data platform and what this thing would do is it would take think of a brand that you're signed up to right it would take you yeah. and you go right this is paul this is how often he's visited our website this is every single thing he's bought in the past here's every single email he's opened and here are the parts of the email that he's clicked and here's where he's spending all of his time here is how we're going to use that data to manipulate paul to buy more products and we're <laughs> yeah, going to sure, send sure. him yeah, yeah. we're going to send him emails we're going to send him ads we're going to we're going to change for so when he comes on the website we'll change what the website looks like we're really going to just make him buy our shit that's what i ended up yeah. selling and i remember one day waking up looking at the ceiling deeply unhappy with myself and thinking how the fuck did I end up here? And it was a slow progression of, well, I didn't care about being number one anymore. There's always this competition in sales teams, like who's number one, who's top gun, who's top dog? It's always this stupid, insecure bullshit. Yeah. And, I, and I, I wasn't in a place where I was like, I was skinned. So after, after that, I went, fuck this. And I just pressed, pressed the red button and out went my previous relationship and my previous flat in central London out went my, my six year sales career took a year off. I was already qualified in therapy, coaching, NLP. Right. And, um, I just spent my time having a fucking blast on that. Next thing you know, TMT kind of blew up a little bit and, and here we are, you know? So I think using dark energy is really good if you're starting out or if you're just in a place where you're not where you want to be. But if you get to a place where, you know, financially you're set, the business is set, your systems are set, your coaching is set, you're all set. That same energy that you approach things isn't gonna take you to the next league. And you're always gonna hit that glass ceiling and you'll either self-sabotage and go backwards, or you just get stuck in the meaning, meaningless purpose for lack of purpose. What am I doing? What is the point? Why am I here? And that's really where you need to be able to operate out of that, that love, so to speak, or I prefer to call it light. And you're constantly doing a dance between the two, the darkness and the light, the yin and the yang, whatever you want to call it, is always that. So that's kind of how I, how I see it. The darkness isn't necessarily all bad. At the same time, all the love and light in the world isn't, isn't, isn't all good because you can get caught up in something and you won't see the, the facts. And you kind of need a little bit of both to make sure that you are. Complete love is naivety. Like the world isn't a completely loving place. If you think that it is, go read some more history, go hang out in other parts of the world. And it, it, you, you, there's no way you're going to sustain that worldview. But equally, people who think it's purely awful well, then you're not paying enough attention either. There is both of these things. Actually, what you were saying reminded me, there's a great strength coach called Dan John, who I think is a wonderfully wise human. And uh, he speaks about, when he's talking about kind of goal stuff, right? You know, you've got where you are and you've got where you're going. And some people are good at one or the other or both, right? And so athlete type people are very clear on where they need to be and where they're kind of going. They're very clear on their point B. Right. And so how the job is to figure out where their point A is and go, right, how do we close that gap from here to there? But he also talks, and this is the great bit, of a lot of people who have no idea what their point B is yet. They just don't want to be at point A anymore. Hmm. And so any direction <laughs> is, okay, at least I'm not skint and worrying hmm. how the fuck am I going to pay bills and get out of here? And so, cool, that served its purpose. You know, you kind of, I, I often think of the negative stuff as being a bit like a rocket fuel, right?
right? It, it's great. You can like really burn off quickly from there, but you will burn out of fuel mm. aggressively if you try and live on that stuff forever. And then you'll also be like, well, what am I aimed at other than away from something? Which over time feels like it lacks a, a magnetism. Also, you, anytime you're aiming away from something, it's always there. It's always pulling you back to it to some degree. And if you're going to be pulled in one direction or another, because really well, that's what values are. They're things that you aim at, consciously or unconsciously, that guide how you think about things, what you're aimed at, how you feel about your progress towards or away from them, all that stuff. And so at some point, you kind of have to tr try and figure out, and it's hard actually to try and figure out if you're not sure what you want to aim at, but you, you kind of do have to try and figure that out and being like, right, I've gotten away from that. No one's dying immediately. Well, now what? And that's, you know, that's the fun stuff, I suppose. <laughs> that's often when we get the phone call. We usually get the phone yeah. call at two points. One point is, well, there's usually three, right? And one point is, Kieran, I'm stressed, I'm overwhelmed, I'm burnt out, we're struggling with this, 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 this. Uh, I'm going to crash the car, I can't continue. That's, that's like one version. Another mm. version is pure light. It's like things are going great, and I know we can go even better, and we're going to bring you on board to optimize exactly what, what we're doing. And that's, a, that's another part. And this is a part in the middle, which is, well, now what? I, I thought this would make me happy. <laughs> I thought this was the answer. And um, I'm not too sure what this is. You know, what, what's the, what, what gives? I'm not motivated as much as I was. I'm not, I'm not as fired up. Now what? And I've reached a few now what moments. And, and, and speaking to you, I know that for a fact you've reached a number of now what moments. And it's really understanding that you kind of have to learn to live in the gray. Life isn't as black and white. One yeah. way that you can start to sort of chip away at some of the black and white is what I call um, elimination goals. That's fine. You don't know what you want. That's okay. But let's highlight you what you fucking inherently do not want. Like let's at least let's at least make that bit easier. Because otherwise, one day you, you'll accidentally wake up and go, "Fuck! How did I end up here? This wasn't part of the plan. It was because you didn't say yeah. you didn't want to go there." And I think that's a, a really, really, a really simple, easy thing. If somebody's listening to this, and goes, "I don't know what I want," then then again, hit pause, spend a couple of minutes, and just write down. What don't I want? And the uh, the bullet points in that question will be so, so powerful. So, so powerful. I mean, one of the things, so over the years, I've worked with quite a few people with disordered eating um, things. I have an ebook on that very topic. It turns out it's very similar to OCD and it's sort of psychopathology. And there's a, one of the hard parts of, you could think of OCD and eating disorder type things to some degree as mono personalities, right? There's this one value system within you that starts dominating everything else to the point nothing else really matters. This is the thing. This is going to steer the ship. And often by the time you realize, fuck, I've got a problem, that personality is so well developed <laughs> that getting rid of it is a bitch. Yeah. And some of getting rid of it is, well, some of it is accepting that it never fully leaves, right? There's always that little part. Once you've built those neural circuits, it's a bit like I describe it as being like riding a shitty bike. Like, if you've been riding a bike for years and years and years, you never forget how to ride that bike. It doesn't matter how long it's been. If I jump back on there and I'm not at least aware of the possibility of myself, if I'm not careful <laughs> of finding myself getting a bit complacent, going down old pathways, like, shit, I'm here again. It's like, so that stuff is there lurking, latent, annoyingly. And you're kind of, all right, I've got to accept that. But then, okay, I've recognized too much of my life is dominated by this. How do I develop these other parts of me? And because and I found the same thing as what you're kind of saying there of starting to write down, okay, what don't you care? Like, what mm. hobby should I get? What things should I kind of care about? I'm like, I don't even know where to start. My, one of my favorite questions is, what did you like as a kid, right? Mm. Like, because some kids are into bugs. Some kids are into maths. Who knows why, right? But 
often the things that you really loved when you were younger before, usually before the teenage years properly kicked in, there might be something in there. Not always, but it's worth a few minutes of kind of exploring and going back and finding, well, is there still some some love for those things? Or even, as you just said, just trying to, oh, I've got this almost impossibly large array of choices in front of me. I don't know where to move. Okay, well, let's just chuck stupid ideas out so you can go, not that, and then not that, and then not that. And at least the impossibly large gets a bit smaller. And maybe you make some moves and you try some things. You're like, I don't know. Well, go and try it. Yeah, I tried it. And then I realized, yeah, I, I fucking ate that thing. <laughs> You're like, cool. Well, that's one we don't have to work towards in that case. And, you know, you can gradually approximate a target that turns out eventually, hopefully, to be something that you start to care about. Yeah, and I think you've got to look at, well, what interests you, what deeply, deeply fascinates you. So for me, psychology is just it's just an endless pit. It's an endless mm. pit. And when you think about psychology, I actually think psychology also ties into philosophy. And then when you look at philosophy, yeah, philosophy technically ties into religion a little bit, but it doesn't, it doesn't. And yep. then religion and psychology have all of these subconscious stories that are retold. So then it's like, well, is it a science or is it an art? And then it's like, well, no, like psychiatry, mm-hmm. psychiatry is a science because we're measuring the neurotransmitters and we put in certain chemicals sure. and that's how this happens. And for me, I could just talk about this shit all day long. The good news is I built a job where I get to do that. And I think as coaches, <laughs> you've got to find the shit that you're fascinated by. You've got to find stuff because when it comes to, so you were talking a lot about making content. If you don't give a shit about your what you're mm. what you're doing, it's gonna be really fucking hard to actually deliver on that and, and sell it. So I always always point people to and I get a lot of phone calls just even from my personal life, like, man, I just feel lost. I'm like, well, what fucking fascinates you? What what is it? For me, people fascinate me. I love the puzzle mm. of understanding well, why is this human being being how they are being and how do they really want to be? And how can we remove the various different uh, lines of code in their subconscious mind that enables them mm-hmm. to go and, and do that and i think when you can find the shit that you're interested in like i could just talk about this shit all day long that's why i've got a podcast and you know we've done nearly 50 episodes now it's it's just fun how often do you find people that are almost apathetic to that who are almost like dude i don't even know how to begin answering that nothing nothing jumps out at me i'm i'm drained i'm fucked i, I uh. <laughs> where do you start mm. with those people well they're probably burnt out so they're probably just tired they're probably like there's just they've just had too much on and physiologically psychologically and unarguably spiritually they're just fucking tired and just like fucking hell so for them i think well actually you need a break you need to slow down you need mm-hmm. to rest you need to go fucking hell, like go spend some time in nature go just do some normal human shit like you're, you're clearly a bit burnt out and then through that just listen and things will then start to pop up well actually yeah i was having this conversation for me i remember um, it's actually led to my, believe it or not, directly led to the breakup of uh, my previous relationship. And it was, it was, it was mm. so profound. I, I went on, um, on a holiday to meet my, my friend Adam who lives in Sweden and he's Swedish and uh, went to Stockholm and we went to like this co-living place where they turned this old hotel into a place where each you could rent each room, but actually you just lived there permanently. And they had all like these communal kitchens and all these places to hang out. And and during the day they were having all of these different all of these different talks. A lot of them were on uh, psychology, philosophy. One of them was talking about uh, how you can use sex to heal trauma. And I was like, right. Half of me was like, that's fucking genius. <laughs> Half of me was like, 
there is some, I'm wary. There is I'm some wary. dodgy <laughs> shit behind that. I'm not too sure. I'm not too sure, but I was fascinated by the concept, you know, the power of sexual yeah, yeah, healing yeah. Or, or whatever. I was like, hmm, who's the, who's the guy that come up with this? I want to look him in the eyes. You know, yeah. I want to see what his real gig is. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, There's the possibility of big red flags there. <laughs> fascinating. And uh, in the end, we ended up going to, we went to like some art galleries. We went, we went out raving, ended up taking MDMA. We're in this old, like, Oh, what was it? it was like a factory that they turned into this sort of raised place and i'm sat there chatting away yeah. and then I, m- I met this architect and they were showing me pictures of all of the projects they were working on and and we, we were up until 7 8 a.m when the sun was rising in stockholm talking about what is the meaning of life and whatever then i had a, the, the, the inevitable come down after that and uh, my flight was cancelled because there was a storm so now i'm sat in, in my mate's loft because that's where the spare room was having a come down on MDMA, grieving my previous identity, because what I realized is all of the people I had around me back in London, I couldn't share any of those experiences with. I couldn't do anything. Right. And it was fucking heartbreaking. And it was really, really sad, you know? And that then led me to go onto the path that that I was on. And that was really fucking hard. And I was clearly burnt out before that. And when you say you couldn't share it with them, you mean like they wouldn't partake in those things or you didn't feel like you could be open about those things as well? Both, both, both. My, 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 yeah. my previous partner is an incredible human being. Like she's amazing, really loving, caring, like really clever. All she's, she's, she's an amazing human being, but I couldn't share any of those things. Like, like we just didn't have that in, in common. And then I looked at my friends in, in, that I had in London, none of them really into that stuff either. And, and it was only through that experience I started to rediscover oh okay like these are the things i'm interested in okay so i think part of it is you're probably just a bit burnt out part of it is like Mm. change up your environment go go explore some new shit you know and revisit the things that fascinate you you know i've always been fascinated by architecture philosophy psychedelics and and their role to be played in the world of performance and psychology uh, and even therapy as well you know so my toe in that was again it kind of relit things up but then i had to grieve that old kieran's got to die <laughs> he's, yeah exactly he, he's done he's finished like you're never going to get that back so i think going back into the shit that interests you so, so for me i've built a company around i'm fascinated by the mind if we think about our entire reality comes through the mind right the whole thing comes through the mind and our interpretation of what's happening so our inter- the, everything we experience comes from our perception thus it makes sense to spend some time at least training it and in, and understanding it and what makes us tick and then performance so my background in in boxing and in sales they're all performance games you win or you lose there's no there's no middle ground of you're doing all right it's like no you either won that fight or you lost or you're either you're either number 1 or you're not and i've always been fascinated by performance and and for me I've been journaling a lot about this and I've been speaking a lot about this with, um, with my clients and with our academy and whatever, which is I've, I've reached the point now where it's about growing at peace, being at peace with who you are, growing towards something that's meaningful enough that it's worth fucking doing and excites you and scares you a little bit because you don't know whether you can do it or not, but fucking let's, let's do it anyway. And I think if you can follow what you're interested in, that will take you there. And if you, can, if you can really understand that, if you're doing things just for the sake of doing them, fine. That will take you on over for a period of time. Slowly but surely, you'll start leaning on crutches, whether that's numbing out via alcohol, drugs, porn, gambling. None of those things are inherently bad. It's just the intentions behind those things that can create an issue. That's typically where you'll you get stuck. But if you can go back to that child, like like you said, like being a child, well, what is interesting about that? Like, do, How often do you do shit or you think about shit or you read shit or you go, that's fucking cool. I want to lose more about that. 
And that's really if you can build a life full of play and purpose and fucking graft, because I, I do think humans need to graft and enjoy yeah, it. Of course. I think that's where I think that's where it is. Well, I think you I mean, you know, in your talk you spoke about uh Chicksent high and flow state. Like where do you lose yourself? Where do you lose a sense of time and even a sense of your own like we're all quite self-conscious creatures as adults, but it's a good sign when you can lose yourself in an activity and be like, Oh, I forgot I existed. <laughs> I was just there. Like, oh, okay, well, where does that happen? And, you know, even listening to you talk about that trip to Sweden, it's pretty evident. You're like, this is the fucking best place in the world. I need to be, why is my life not like this, right? And then, oh shit, I'm going to have to change my life because there's no way I can have a life that isn't aimed at something like this. Because how can I have this experience and then pretend it didn't exist? You've, you know, you've, you've taken the blue pill. I always forget whether it's the blue or the red pill. So that never works for my matrix analogy. Well, you've opened Pandora's, but whichever one you want to kind of do, you're like, you, you can never not know that that exists now. And so you can't go back to the old world. You know, you're at the hero's journey, if you wanted to use mm. some Joseph Campbell from a religious and psychological perspective. We'll, we'll, reflect, um, we'll reflect on and, that very quickly. What's so fascinating is I now live in a co-living building, which was just like that one where... Oh, really? Yeah, yeah, really similar. Oh, wow. Like, oh, so awesome. downstairs, yeah. we have a co-working space. We have um, like a, an outdoor barbecue, we have a pool on the roof, and it's all built around the concept of co-living. So there's loads of entrepreneurs here. So you just sort of meet lots of people that are doing lots of different things. I built a company built around performance and, and psychology. I'm having lots of convers- philosophical conversations like this, which are what is inherently the point of any of this stuff. And it's only just then where I made a connection where that one weekend where I loved all of that stuff, I've actually run towards that and here I am. I actually live in that, in that, in that shit. You know, you don't have to have yeah, a big yeah. moment like that, but you have to give yourself, you have to buy tickets to the lottery to win those lotteries <laughs> and then go, well, is it worth doing? You know? Well, as those old things of opportunity and luck and two roads diverged in a yellow wood and all the kind of shit like that, where... Okay, you don't know when big life-changing moments might happen. And maybe they, because they're pretty rare, right? The epiphany moment is a rare moment in life, but they can happen. Sometimes we do have a moment that just changes us kind of like that. And fuck knows why sometimes, but it, it does. And then other times it's more of a steady graft and we like plug away at something and plug away at something. Or for Kieran in this, big moment. And then shit, now I've got to go and change a bunch of stuff that's going to be a bit slower towards building to this thing. But started from that moment. Like... As he said, you've just got to go and throw yourself into those situations. What do you aspire to? What do you look up to? Who do you look up to? Like, fuck around with all those ideas and start paying attention to yourself and you'll find the answers in you. I'm yet to find someone. I'm not saying they don't exist because you can almost universally find someone. But generally speaking, you find them inside yourself somewhere. Yeah. And there'll be some coaches on here that are like, this is great, but I want to get paid. How do you get paid from this? Well, when you directly run into that stuff you then become magnetic and when you become magnetic people want to learn more about you once they love to learn more about you well, guess what they will sense that you have something that they perceive that they don't so then they're going to want to work with you so if you can really nail that not only are you going to enjoy your life a lot more the results that you get with clients and the connection that you have with clients and the type of clients that you attract versus the clients that you're possibly working with that you're not enjoying as much it completely changes the game and that's where i think we're all putting out a certain frequency into the universe and some people will hear that and they go, fuck that. Ooh. Other people will go, that's fascinating. I want some more of that. And the more that you can truly be your authentic self and, and put that frequency out, I think you were talking a lot about that in your talk about, you know, when you actually communicate in front of camera, you, you talked a lot about the technicals, which was amazing, but also the energy that you want to put out and, and why you want to put that out there. And I think 
And the more that you can be, it sounds so cliche, I'll be a true star, I'll be authentic. But my view is cliches are cliches for a reason, because we have enough data throughout humankind to understand that, well, they're kind of like the unwritten laws of the universe. So they kind of make sense. I mean, and the more that you can be at peace with yourself, the more you can just be you. And that's where life becomes really fun. Yeah, the authenticity thing always kind of interests me because everyone understands that word. And yet there is no obvious answer to what it is all at the same time. <laughs> right? You're like, what does it yeah. mean to be authentic? Like, hmm. Uh, <laughs> like you end up going, well, do I have a soul? Is this just it's an integrity idea, being the same person in different situations? We kind of notice it in people that we know when we think they're not being it. But it's, it's a super mm-hmm. hard to define thing. You know, to use the old line about porn, you know it when you see it, right? And <laughs> there's, there's these kind of strange, strange, I forget who said that. I think it was like an American senator when asked on trial or something. It's like, can you define porn? He was like, ah, well, you know it when you see it. I was like, that just stuck with me as a, as a funny kind of line. But mm. it, it takes time because they're like, kids are always authentic. Like young kids don't know how to not be authentic for a while. And then we become self-conscious as we as we kind of grow and our frontal cortex grows and we learn we can manipulate the world a bit and some other stuff and then we're like ah identity crisis and then we've got to grow and change and then eventually Mm -hmm. hopefully you come back around to finding i don't know anyone who doesn't have a bit of an identity crisis in their teen years (laughs) and their early 20s because if you You've got to do some growing. If you look at the world the same way you do at 35 as you did at 25 as you did at 15, I, I don't know what you're doing in the interim, right? Mm. But you'll, you've got to refine yourself on what that means. And you also need skills. You have to give something to the universe because you do need to get paid for some things. And thankfully, there's great opportunities in so many fields that actually it, that's not as scary as it could be. Mm. But like, it, it's going to take time for you to develop those skills and to develop your personality and to try a bunch of stuff and fail at it. And to, uh, well, I wanted to do that because I saw the other people doing it and they look cool, but I realized that wasn't really me, right? And and all that messy shit, because there's no, there's no non-messy path to finding yourself and finding mm. the things that you care about. And so that relationship we have to things like failure is something that I think you guys do a great job of talking about and the rest that, you know, that's, it's not really failing. It's just finding ways that haven't worked yet. Right. I think yeah. Thomas Edison said something like when he hadn't made the light bulb, he's like, I haven't failed to make the light bulb. I've just found 999 ways to not make a light bulb. <laughs> I tell you what, I love, right? I, I love the concept of like, uh, like, a, a working class Thomas Edison. I ain't fucking sussed it yet. <laughs> I'm fucking working on it. I ain't sussed it yet. Leave, leave me at it. <laughs> This should be a series. I mean, yeah. <laughs> this, we need yeah. to see making content as, you know, street urchin Thomas Edison. Yeah. <laughs> I ain't fucking sussed it yet, son. It's in the post. That that was one thing a client said to me once. It's like, don't worry, mate, it's in the post. And I use that so much. I'm like, it's in the, it's in the, it's in the post. It's coming, you know? Uh, that's, coming. that's good. That's good. Oh, I love that. Well, Paul, I've got one final question for you, mate. Forget. Mm us as a as an organization forget the concept of anything that tmp does but what does the phrase total mental performance mean to you if you had total mental performance how would you know that is an interesting question i don't know that you would completely know because total becomes the word perfect Mm -hmm. and how in the hell do you get that so it's aspirational i think that's one of the first things for it and sometimes people shit on perfectionism and i think that's always a bit dumb because perfect just means the the absolute good And if you have two ways of thinking about good, goods can either be absolute, something is either good or bad, black and white. 
in which case, if it's good, it's perfectly good. Or we're on a spectrum, in which case, what do you put at the far end of the good spectrum other than perfect? So you can't get away from perfect. It's going to exist. So total, in this instance, is, is going to be equivalent to kind of perfect. So it, it, why would you not want to aim at that? <laughs> That'd be like aiming at being not so good. Why? Well, that just seems weird, right? So, okay, total. Then the, the, the mental performance is also, I think, an interesting one because I don't know that as many people think about putting the word mental in there as they should. And if you've learned and been through any psychological stuff, it becomes kind of, it feels self-evident, but I don't know that it is. Like when we say the word performance, people I think think throwing balls or achieving this, that, and the other. And they so very rarely forget that you, to some degree, are a, a vehicle that you inhabit full of machinery and full of pathways and thoughts. And the you that exists right now is just one version of a potential who knows how many of you that could be there. And you get to play a role in cultivating and developing the person you get to become. So why in the fuck would you aim at not being the best version of you you could be for everything that you could be? Because wouldn't that be a better life? And so I think total mental performance to me suggests how do we make you the best you that you'd love living that has the best impact on the rest of the world around it from a familial, from a relationship, from a career, from a financial, from a performance in a physical sense, all of those things. And they're all contingent, as you rightly said, on the head that is at the middle of all of those bits and pieces. You don't get to control everything that happens to you, but you do have some say in how you respond to all of those things. And so if you can cultivate that thing, you become a bit unfuckable with, right? And that doesn't mean that bad shit doesn't happen to you, but it does mean that you get to handle that in a way that you go, I'm really proud of myself for the way I handled that. And I wouldn't change a damn thing about how I responded to it. And that's the only thing you control. So that's what it means to me. Love it. Paul, where can everyone find you? Instagram's the easiest place for me. So Paul Standell, just search that. That's the easiest one. You'll also find us at the PT Project or the Personal Trainer Project. So far away on Instagram, you'll find all my details and other bits and pieces there, but that's the easiest one. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure. I knew we'd go down all sorts of twisty turns and uh, <laughs> that was really fun. I deeply enjoyed that. So thank you for your time and energy, mate. Much appreciated. Pleasure, mate. Thanks very much. So that's us for today, team. I want to say a huge thank you for spending this portion of your life listening to us. A couple of things before you disappear. If you're not already following us on Instagram, you can find all of our daily content on mindset and hitting peak performance at Total Mental Performance or our website, www.totalmentalperformance.com. If you haven't already, please subscribe. You'll find us on Spotify, uh, the Apple Podcasts, and all the other various different platforms. Big love. Thank you ever so much. And we're looking forward to speaking with you soon.